Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So no, now anything we say can and will be held against us in the court of law. It will be recorded forever. We know our Miranda rights have now been read to us. I thought your statement, Paul, when I was reading your article, when Christians take up the sword to secure themselves and their people, they have abandoned the power of the resurrection for the power of death. I just thought that was gold. Oh, thanks. Now, how do we translate that to people who are in that field of life, who are in the military, to, to show them that the cross is a way of dying rather than of taking up the sword and killing others? That's the next question of how we disciple them to become a part of the peaceful kingdom, which that's what I'm struggling with because I have a lot of family that's ex-military and and then also other people who are very patriotic, especially the ones that believe that our founding fathers were very Christian. I say, well, if you really dived into it, you know, coming over and slaughtering all the Native Americans, that wasn't too Christian. And, you know, starting the Revolutionary War, you know, it's supposed to submit to your government, but obviously that's a that's an option in of itself. But regardless, I'm not sure what's the best route. I don't know that I do either. I don't depend on that group of people not firing me for my livelihood. I already got fired, <laughs> uh, and probably precisely because of this. It is an offensive gospel. I think a nonviolent gospel is offensive. And I have a few students out there that are trying to work in traditional congregations, and I can only commend them for that. It has yet to been proven. Uh, I'm not sure if it works. It may work that you take them incrementally and you expose them, getting individuals to come around to the gospel. The thing that I'm afraid of, What we're really talking about here is do we preach the gospel at church? To my mind, nonviolence is such an integral part of the gospel at this point for me that I cannot separate it out. In other words, I can't say, well, there is a Christianity in which it's all right to participate in violence. I'm old. My kids are raised. It's easier to be brave when your job does not depend on it. In other words, I don't know the diplomatic. I don't know how to go about this. This was always the advantage to have people in a classroom setting, even though the administrators of the school eventually rejected a nonviolent gospel. As long as I had you in class, it's a great place to shape people and say, well, here's the gospel. Maybe a good portion of the people, I never counted noses, but probably many of the people that came through my classes rejected what I was saying and just rejected that gospel. But I would also say that a good many did not. And so I guess what I'm saying is if you have the opportunity to expose people to prolonged teaching on the gospel, that's going to be the place that you shape them. I think it can be difficult to change people's orientation on this issue simply on a Sunday morning from the pulpit. Uh You know, the world has its place, and the world has to deal with evil, but we have a higher calling than that. That the Christian, when he's trying to um, seek what he will do in the world, that's not an option available to them. 
You need to keep working with people. And, and some of that's just done individually. We're going through the, the Gospel of Matthew right now and been doing that for about six months. I always go back to the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and, and love for enemies. And, you know, our calling as a Christian is be the peacemaker. And so we're very entrenched with nationalistic tendencies. And, yeah, I mean, if you speak anything in any way or, or question, you know, whether or not our country's military should be involved in something, you've questioned the Trinity. You know, I've really just focused on, you know, Jesus is not just a, a savior, but this is somebody that offers an alternative to, to all the kingdoms of the world. I, I still get a paycheck. Yeah. I, I honestly feel like it's the vain way that your generation's got to die before we can fix this problem. The next generation, I'm talking about my generation down, maybe they can be the peaceable kingdom because everyone is, like you said, David, they're so entrenched in their patriotism that it's not going to leave them. They've been born with this. This has been their entire life. They think this is their only option to have a Constantinianism entrenched with their Christianity And because I don't think one person speaking is enough. I think it takes the voice of lots of different people to influence your perspective. But I think that takes time, like you mentioned. Give us the Canadian perspective, Tim. This must all sound strange. I think traditionally, we tend to think more of our military as a peacemaking role. I think it was a, a Canadian general who brokered the deal in Northern Ireland, so we kind of like take pride in that. I, I was going to a Methodist church. And one Sunday, we, it, was, it happened to fall on July 1st. That's our, it's called Canada so it's the same as your July 4th. It's kind of our, you know, it's just a day to celebrate the birth of Canada or whatever. And someone got up in the congregation and wanted to sing O Canada. And I walked out. I actually walked out. And I, I said to the pastor after, do you realize, you know, we're, we're trying to kind of have separation of church and state here. Yeah, there's just not nearly the pressure here. And I guess the other thing that's kind of funny I, I joke about is we don't really talk about politics much up here. There's more important things like hockey. Yeah. <laughs> One of you mentioned about the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. I've been part of an Anabaptist church, and unfortunately, many of the Anabaptist, or we use Mennonite brethren, churches here, have been all co-opted by the people that follow John Piper. And they've very gladly taken the money, millions of dollars, that's been, there's been a very big church planting move. So it's been among Anabaptist Mennonites, who traditionally have been a you know, peace position, pacifism and uh, used the money to set up a lot of churches, huge congregations. They've been very successful, but no peace message whatsoever. I, I understand the U.S. You know, I've, I've got American friends here that work with our organization. And their thing is, well, Jesus was violent. So they always use the cleansing of the, the so-called cleansing of the temple. That's their favorite story. And so Jesus, you know, san uh, sanctioned violence because of what he did. And I, and I think I understand that people come by it honestly, because if you read the Israel's scriptures in a certain way, it actually appears that God is on Israel's side slaughtering their enemies. To come along and say, well, God's not violent, people just go, what are you talking about? You don't believe the Bible, because it's very clear. God slaughters babies of Egyptians, and there's a lot of deconstruction that has to take place. That one article I think that you did, Paul, that was part of this, was the trial of Jesus is a trying of the human law of justice and truth. Again, the whole idea that God needed Jesus to die. So if you've got a violent God, I think everything else just follows. And so why shouldn't we be violent? If God is like that and uses force and killing to get things done on this earth, then we ought to do the same thing. So we have a lot of unpacking to do to try and get people to think differently. But I don't think you can see the gospel 
with, with a violent God. I think you have the Christian religion. I wonder if the, the issue, the problem, how we understand, it, it is obviously how we understand the Bible, right? More than just how do we understand the Bible, but how do we understand the story? You know, a lot of my own personal transformation was when I began to see, uh, it was really N.T. Wright, he begins to, you know, show that the Bible actually has this, this grand story, this grand narrative. And when you begin to understand that narrative, it makes sense of the violence that's in the Old Testament. It makes sense. You know, my, my old way, you have the Old Testament was plan A, it failed. It was already, it was always going to fail. And then you had the New Testament and Jesus, that was plan B. God knew he was always going to have to bring plan B. And so uh, the Old Testament was just a proof text that pointed towards this rather than seeing there's not a, an A and a B. There was always one plan, you know, the grand narrative of Abraham and, and you know, the blessing. And because once you begin to understand that story, all of a sudden you, you begin reading the book of Isaiah you know, in different ways, you begin to see the New Testament, you begin to understand things that change everything. And, and so I feel until we can help people see the grand story, our battles will, you know, it doesn't do us any good just to argue with people because we've read two different books. In a sense, we, we have not left the same topic. If you read Romans 6 to 8 in the way that I think it, it is a picture, a depiction of the primary human problem as one in which there is a misorientation to the law. That works at a private psychological level, but yes, but it's the same problem at a public, political, legal level. In other words, the two problems are not different. In both instances, the law then is imagined to be the essence or the ground or the foundation. And so that's what you're getting, you know, that's literally Luther's reading of the depiction of the trial of Christ. You know, he thought that Pilate's wife was a temptress trying to get him not to kill Christ. And of course, in Luther's understanding, we need the law enforced so Christ can die so he can fulfill the, it actually goes back to Anselm. Anselm de depicts the same thing, that it is the fulfillment. In order to say the word fulfillment of the law, it's not a suspension of the law, it's not over and against the law, but it is a working out of the penalties uh, necessary and extracted by the law. It's a fairly simple frame that, if you see it, that what is happening in the trial of Jesus, or what is happening in chapter 12 and 13, in a sense, accords with what has been happening in 7 and 8. It's just that Paul is moving from human interiority to the socio-cultural legal frame of, of reference. Everybody knows what the Kantian categorical imperative is. I used to know. I can't remember it now. It's nothing complicated. What we have in modernity, I think, is a case in point of what we're talking about. And that is in the Kantian categorical imperative, which, as obscure as this may sound, this is really what is there in contractual Christianity. I mean, the, that precedes this, obviously. But, and that is the ca categorical imperative is that I would only do that which I would will to be done universally. What Kant is saying is that all people everywhere can arrive at a universal moral code 
and that we share then this moral code, we, we share this law, and that we can arrive at this understanding of duty as illustrated in the, in the categorical imperative. The presumption in the modern period, but I think the modern period is an outworking of a, actually I think it's strangely an outworking of a misreading of Scripture, is that there is a universal moral code, a universal ethic, instantiated in human governments and laws. It's all, it's all a, a, of a piece. This too, then, human government's law is, is always God's law. It was the categorical imperative that Adolf Eichmann, he actually quotes the categorical imperative and said, what would you have me do? What would you have had me do? Break the law? What would, what would happen if all people broke the law? He's a good German, and he's arguing philosophically, not deeply, but philosophically. The point being that the categorical imperative, and this is the insight, I think, of New Testament Christianity, but this is also the insight where Freud and psychoanalysis take us, is that what we would imagine is the law of God is the law of the devil. And somebody like Eichmann illustrates it. You take this categorical imperative, and it's pure evil right? This is precisely the Freudian critique of human morality. That is, the thing that we psychologically imagine is moral, our conscience, the superego, is that punishing thing that, you know, it's the guilt. Freud will call it unconscious guilt. What he means by unconscious guilt, you just suffer. Suffering, you're just working out the payment beforehand. I think it's the same framework. If you take the same picture, you know, this is the Marquis de Sade actually does the categorical imperative for evil. Mar everybody knows sadism comes from the Marquis de Sade, right? He spent most of his life in prison because he was a sadist, and he openly supported the idea that it is okay to murder people and that it should be done universally, that because what the what the categorical imperative is, is that all people should pleasure themselves as much as possible. So he literally takes it. I mean, he's not just doing it poetically. He does do it. He writes novels, but he does it in his life. But I think that what you see in the Marquis de Sade is a typical of what you're going to find. We can see that a, guy, a character like Adolf Eichmann or the Marquis de Sade, oh, these people are evil. But understand they're evil precisely because they obey a categorical imperative. They're following the law. But of course, what I would argue, and I think what the New Testament is arguing, is that it's not just that a good German, Adolf Eichmann, is a healthy, he's mentally healthy, right? No mental problems. He's outstanding. Of the Nazis, were lovers of classical music. They had achieved the heights of, you know, their career. Well, can't we turn that around and say, yes, but isn't it the case that it's not just the problem of a few strange individuals? If we are shaped, and I think that that's where this week we're getting into, what is a human being? Well, a human being is always someone who is shaped then by a sociocultural context. And when we talk about the principalities and powers, that to be a good citizen of this world, I presume, will always make us evil, right? 
In other words, the best of citizens. The example I always use here in Missouri is, who's a better citizen than Harry S. Truman? He ran a little hat store and was probably a very simple-minded man. The guy that got him elected to the political machine here in Missouri, he said that he wanted to get Harry Truman elected president just to make a point that any office boy could serve. And of course, it's Harry S. Truman that drops the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Needless. And again, you know, people argue that. I suppose that, oh, if you want to argue about Hiroshima, nobody's going to argue that Nagasaki was a necessity. So here's somebody that has killed his hundreds of thousands and is then ideal citizen. And so my point would be that this is always what will happen if we are simply shaped if we simply are good citizens. In other words, the two things, we have to understand that they're in opposition to one another. We use this language being of the world, well, oh, I don't want to be smoking and dancing and listening to that rock and roll music. It's much more profound than we often make it. And I think in this context, then, this is, it is precisely in our recognition that what a human being is, is someone who's shaped by a socioculture. And that's the whole point of what is the church. I think one of the questions is we explain how holistic salvation is necessarily connected to the church. So what we need to understand about what a koinonia is supposed to be is that it is supposed to contain all of those elements that were contained in Israel It's a politic, it's a culture, it's an identity. That's how you get human beings. There's no such thing as human beings apart from that. And so what we are to be about in the koinony of the church is that, you know, this is the significance of Yoder's, the politics of Jesus. Oh, there's no such thing as a church without a politic. The word culture is just the word from cultus, a word connected to religion. Well, obviously we're to be a culture. Taken to its fullest and most beautiful extent, then all that is contained in culture should be part of what is happening in Christians. Usually when we talk about Christian culture, we're talking about B-grade movies that no one can endure to, to watch. In some way, I just imagine that as Christians, we're to be engaging in activities that is certainly an engagement with the culture, but then the danger here may be to always pick, depict it as anti, and I don't mean to do that. In other words, I think we can get a little bit carried away with the idea that the church is necessarily a counterculture. I think there's a danger in that. In, in this, I'm, I'm a little bit against Stanley Harwas. He, you know, and maybe this is just a way you have to talk in this country. You, know, you just have to talk about the counterculture. And what I mean by this is, well, to talk about the church as a counterculture is to, in some way, assign an essence to the cultures of this world that they do not, in fact, have. That's number one. But number two, it may not be to have a deep appreciation of what is there in the culture and should be appreciated by the church. That It's not that we just ignore and reject. And so, in, in a sense... What you get in the early church's engagement with Greek philosophy is a kind of example. What do you do with the Greek philosophy? Everybody's speaking Greek, and everybody's speaking and using those categories. That's just the categories people think in. And so what's happening in early theology, it's not anti, you know, it's not simply a rejection of that. 
But it's a taking of that and taking the, the riches of Egypt and, and making them our own, you know. This can be stated in, in very simple terms, that we eat together, that we sing together, all these things that we do, that they should constitute an economy, an alternative co economy, an alternative governance. If the church is really what it's supposed to be, it should be fully engaged in, in all of these ways. And of course, I don't think it is. The picture that you get in the, the kind of anti-intellectualism of the church, maybe that's just part of the problem, is that the church is, is floats free of most of these key categories, I think, that would, would, that would make it an effective place of salvation. I wonder, Paul, like I noticed within the Anabaptist movement, there seems to be several different flavors. Like your Brian Zahn, very vocal, very out there. And usually his vocalness is, is more churches are going off the wrong way or whatever. Mm -hmm. Then you take on the other spectrum of the Anabaptists. You take groups, um, you know, I think of some of the Mennonite groups. When um, we were doing some work in West Africa, we're doing some work with Mennonites. Same positions, right? But they seem to go about it in a different way, a more of a quieter way. In other words, they focus on their, their community, not so much calling out the evils of either churches or governments, but just seeking to live by the ways they believe Jesus, Jesus teaches. Maybe that's a wrong depiction, um, because there are some who feel like they need to be a John the Baptist. There are others who, you know, the church just needs to simply engage their, their local community and, and, and walk in, in Jesus' ways. Let me see if I can paint the picture more starkly and if this is what you're talking about. I've done uh, a podcast with a guy that's at Messiah College. He's written extensively on nonviolence and peace. You know, and I've also interviewed a, a group. They have an office in Washington, D.C. And so there are groups that are very militant in their pacifism. And they're coming up with strategies to protest, to go to nuclear weapons sites, you know, think of the Catholic worker group that literally go in and, you know, some of these people are in prison now for a long time because they've come, gone in and destroyed weapons. So there's that. Is the, and so that, that would be people who are taking nonviolence in a kind of aggressive way and saying, well, here, this is the, the way you should go. And then they're here locally, you know, the Amish who are kind of just withdrawn and have no real interest in engaging the culture per se. Would those be the two pictures, or have I painted it too extremely? I, I think those are part of the two pictures. What I find with the Amish is that they're doing exactly what you, what you say. They're, they're trying to live out their community. I don't know that there's any conversion into that community, except for what, what is born in, you know, into that community. I was thinking of, of some of those uh, Anabaptist groups. Some would have an evangelistic appeal. I don't, the Amish really don't have an evangelistic appeal. Some of your Mennonite groups do, and you know, maybe some of your Quakers. I, but I think that's all. Obviously, the Amish have said, we're going to live this certain way. The problem I have with that is that they've withdrawn themselves from their communities that are around them. I feel like there's a better way. Our church could become so inward that we have no connection with any of our neighbors. I don't think Jesus ever did that. It's somewhere in there. I just don't know where to label it yet. I think the two extremes are probably what we don't want. 
in one way, we can set the church up as always an oppositional force. On the other hand, let, let me tell you about, I, I did an interview with uh, this morning with a guy named Aaron Woods. He's a PhD student at Asbury. Asbury. Yeah, yeah. And he had spent some time in Jerusalem teaching in a school there that is teaching nonviolence to Muslim Palestinians in Jerusalem. I don't know how you get any more. That's pretty engaged. I think it's very successful, and it was started by an Assemblies of God. I think what I'm describing is, well, actually, we can take this thing. I don't think we should hesitate to engage the world. Not necessarily in, you know, I think that you can almost be violent about your nonviolence, not in a violent nonviolence, but I think that we need to effectively engage. In a sense, I, you know, in my own little tiny area and maybe in my own little cowardly way, I'm doing it intellectually. But I, I feel like that's what I've done with Freudian psychology. In other words, there is a, a harvest there to be reaped that can be utilized, but that's just one area. I think that Christians should be working in every area in the same way and occupying and utilizing insights that are there and applying them then to the gospel. And it can happen intellectually across the board in philosophy, sociology. I think it, that should be what's happening. But I think it can happen in other areas that, you know, and it could happen in every area. We all have our gifts. We, none of us can do everything. But I think as a church, if we had that vision, that then we could be shaping people that would carry on that engagement. One thing I was just thinking about is, um, like when I was with uh, listening to Doug Campbell last week, he's also actively involved in prison ministry and the whole vision toward restorative justice and not retributive justice. And it's interesting. Where I don't know exactly where the the, the roots of this is. Um, we've got nonviolent communication and all of this kind of thing. It's very big in our culture here. Sentences will be reduced for, what was the word? You don't call them prisoners. He used persons who've been charged with a criminal offense because he doesn't want to depersonalize people. Mm-hmm. And there's a way they would, they would, you know, victim impact statements, this kind of thing. But this is coming from culture. Like, this is actually coming from within the prison system itself. You know, there's a joke a few years back about, you know, in Canada, the prisons, people are trying to break into the prisons because they're so nice in the sense, you know, you can get an education, you can get their treat. We try to treat them with respect, but it's always with the goal of restoring them. It's not punitive. It's not retributive. You took some of my happiness. We're going to take some from you. And, And so that's another way. And I've got friends involved in prison ministry. That's a whole other way in which we can show a, a peaceful, non-combat, non-violent way of engaging the world. So it's just one, uh, another way that we can do. And, and I think sometimes I feel like th- there's things happening in our culture that are, are more compassionate than the church. I have no idea we're on the whole question of universal health care. I think our health care system is amazing in Canada. I really do. Oh, I, I do too. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I would myself, move there just for that. <laughs> used it a few times and it's been wonderful, but there's no sense... If there's two or three or five percent of people who should be working, but they're too lazy because they're, you know, that story, well, we'll carry them. It's not the end of the world. If 95% of us are paying taxes and we have to take care of a few people at the bottom of the, that just aren't able to work or don't want to work, well, let's bring them along with us. And I mean, I'll even myself personally, I got 
tremendous help in the last five years, all free of charge. You know, and I mean, there used to be a kind of a saying here in Vancouver, you had to have at least tried to kill yourself once before you'll actually get into the system. And there's some wonderful programs in helping people with addiction. And churches are, the churches are doing stuff like that. They're involved in divorce care, and they've got Celebrate Recovery, the 12-step program. All of this kind of stuff is very, you know, there, there's a tremendous amount of peace within that, those movements. So I think, you know, there's little pockets of light and pockets of the, the gospel penetrating even outside of the church. Canada and the United States is very, it's a very interesting because in, in many ways, you the, the two cultures are actually quite different. This sort of came out with, uh, you know, the, the documentary Bowling for Columbine. I think it was there that he went up to Canada. Canada's gun laws are not actually much different, as I understand it. But Canadians tend not to shoot people. The prison system, the health care system, I think you can just go through it. I don't know the root cause. The prison population here, we now have the largest prison population of any industrialized country in the world. It's just probably is in competition with the old gulag in the former Soviet Union, you know. And part of it is that there is this whole philosophy that, that the point of the system is punishment. So you've got a maximum security prison in Colorado, actually, where you keep these guys in isolation for the rest of their life. I mean, that is a form of torture. Even the fact, isn't it, that the U.S. of A, now I know things are changing, but it's the only country in the, in the West now, I believe, that does capital punishment. I don't think there's another country, none of Europe does, you know, none of the developing nations or the Western world, maybe the odd place in Europe, like all of Europe has banned capital punishment, but states are, one after another, are, are getting rid of it too. They're not going to allow it anymore, recognizing it for, for uh, the barbarism that it is. And so that's a positive thing, but the fact that it still does happen is, is, is discouraging. And I think it's directly tied to bad theology. Mm-hmm. Very much so, because it's right there in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, it, and where you're going to find it, Texas is probably the, it's the Bible buckle is where you're going to find the extreme cases. There is an engagement to be made in all of these areas that, that the result of a kind of bad theology, we're witnessing it. I mean, if ever there were a moment that one might wish that people would see the emptiness of evangelical Christianity as it has been expressed on the national scene in Donald Trump. And don't get me wrong, I'm not demonizing him. I just think that publicly he is, if you on a scale of evil, you know, is, is Dick Cheney more evil than Donald Trump? Well, I think it would be hard to, to judge. Probably Dick Cheney was the more dangerous individual because he was intelligent. But at least with the former presidents, what you had was at least a nod to some form of Christian morality, even though, you know, if you would take the standard of the war crimes tribunal and apply them to all of the post-war presidents, they would all be judged war criminals. By this, I'm not in some way picking on Donald Trump. But I just think that with him, there is an obvious open emptiness to the religion that would support him that is, I think, characteristic that we're describing this in the prison system, and you can just go right on through. People's lives are being destroyed. In this instance, I think demonstrably 
through an evangelical Christianity that has embraced a peculiarly evil understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So I think we need to engage that, and I'm not saying I know how to engage it, but at least we need to be aware this is the problem. Is that troubling, David, the way I said that? No, not at all. I mean, obviously, that's what we're seeking to to work out. Ultimately, how do we look more like Jesus? It becomes very difficult because there's such powerful cultural influences. Reading, uh, I think, it's The Long Shadow of Slavery. uh, It was a Restoration Church group um, from all three branches. I think it was in the 1850s, what was it, that within the Restoration Church, we had more slaves than any other group. And what really troubles me is, is that when you grow up within, let's say you grow up within that slave culture, that's all you know. And how do you remove yourself beyond that culture? And I don't think it's an easy thing to do. I don't think it's a very easy thing for us to do either, to remove ourselves from our culture and, and simply look more like Jesus, you know, because there's these powerful influences. You know, I'm guessing like the Canadian church, Tim, I don't know uh, the healthcare. I'm assuming that the Canadians are not as vocally against health care. The Christians now, I'm talking that the church in Canada is not saying, you know, we got to get rid of this. This is a horrible thing. Not at all. Right. So the Canadian Christians don't see the the evil of universal health care, whereas American Christians see it as some great evil. How much does our culture play upon it rather than our, our Christian, you know, to walk with Jesus. You know, that's my greatest concern because I don't want to just follow the next fad. And and that's why I love this class and uh, the whole institute, because, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is how do we understand the revolutionary message of Jesus? Part part of the engagement, you know, that somebody like Slavoj Zizek, that's very beneficial. In other words, that knowing something a little about Marxism and communism, very interesting, because what Zizek is describing, in other words, if I had to characterize Karl Marx, I'd say he's a, 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 it's a Christian heresy. So that you can take Marxism. What, what is Marxism? Well, in a, in a way, it's a critique. It's a critique of capitalism. But understand that it's also a critique of ideology per se. That is, once you get the, the point here that what's happening in any kind of ideology is that the ideology is going to be used, whether consciously or unconsciously, but it is a means of manipulation to get people to do something over and against their own best interest for the elites in the culture. That's just so obvious what's happened. You know, I'm against abortion. I'm against it like anybody else. But what has taken place is that you take an issue like that. Politicians on either side of that issue understand you can take that issue and use it as a a kind of vehicle to get people to do all sorts of things. But that's, you understand, that's always what's happening with nationalism. The simple example, so much of this I saw in Japan, that in uh, post-war Japan, that you have large corporations, and I'm describing, this is actually an actual corporation. Austin's probably heard this illustration, the shoe company. They came in, and the president of the company, he recruited young women from farms and rural life and brought them in to work in the factory. 
And the basis that he did it on, they would nationalize. In other words, they'd say, well, you want to be a, a good Japanese citizen and you want to su support the nation, right? You want to support the rejuvenation of the nation. And so look, we'll work seven days a week here in the factory. You know, you can't get sick. We can't afford to have good citizens. And, and just, you know, on and on and on. Of course, the, the point is that what is always happening in an ideology is that someone is use, utilizing the ideology, nationalism in this instance, the guy got cheap slave labor, you know, or wage slave labor, to become enrich himself under the guise of enriching the nation. This is just Donald Trump. This is the Republican Party. But it's not, a, it's not simply that. That's just, just, this is just always what's happening. But as a Christian, in other words, I think we need to be able to critique ideology wherever we find it and whenever we find it. But we have so people so ill-equipped spiritually and intellectually. You know, years ago, I, I think it was the Washington Post, and at the time, I thought, well, that's not very fair. You know, it described evangelicals as an ignorant mass of people that could easily be swayed. And as I look back on it, I think, yeah, that's probably about right. The church needs to be a place of engagement with issues, political issues, social issues, and it needs to be a resource for people that is not otherwise available to them. What you get in the culture, whether it's the educational institutions or the social institutions, they will always be or tend to be a support then of the ideology, the ethos of, of the culture. Once you, once you start talking like that, what is the proper role of the state? Well, then, if, if you're in a place where you can critique state purposes, you're in a place where you understand that the state has a limited role and political leaders have a limited role, which is, I think, what is being portrayed in the New Testament, that this is not God's kingdom. Donald Trump is not God's man in the White House. I saw Paula White said this this week that the White House is holy ground because anywhere she goes is holy ground. <laughs> the idea of a radical subordination, I don't think there's anything difficult there. Did that resonate with you or did you have a problem with that? It just sounds like a peaceful resistance against the kingdoms of this world. You know, there is times, there are occasions when we can stand up as Christians and say, that's not right. We don't have to submit to that power. Granted, Paul says, pay taxes, give customs, and we can do that, but it never says participate in government. You know, yeah, I, whenever we read that text, I say, well, when does this ever say that actually pick up the sword and join up with them? It doesn't. Paul never mentions that. He just mentions to uh, give your fair share of what they demand of you, but not their allegiance. You're not supposed to give them your allegiance because that's what Paul never mentions in the text. But what can we do as Christians to be civil but still disagree? I think, you know, in ways that's maybe if something is really abhorred through our site, you know, we can just protest in a way. I'm not saying like, you know, throwing rocks at people, but we can speak up our minds. And I think that's what we're doing right here, right now. We're, we're having a dialogue about how things are corrupt. And, you know, we see the things about the border and families being torn apart. I think we can speak up about that and say how, how horrid that really is. I think that's the way we can participate in this world, but not being you know, on the side of the government. What little I have done, and I, I'm not a great example, but on the issue like of the border, I called all my senators and congressmen. 
I'm always amazed that I get response. They actually, you know, they'll take your call and they, they record it. Really? Whether, yeah. I don't know if it does any good, but not to do something. I think is also then a kind of fallacy to just be passive. You know, when we say pacifism, I, you know, many people don't like that word because it sounds passive. I don't think Jesus is passive. He's aggressively nonviolent. Are you familiar with the, with the work of Walter Wink? A little bit, yeah. Talk, talk yeah. about Walter Wink. He talks about nonviolent resistance, and that's what Jesus actually taught. And I, I can't remember the specific thing, but the idea of giving your shirt when they ask for it or, or turning the other cheek, it's actually a form of, of resistance. It's not being a doormat or walking the extra mile. It's a, it's a form of healthy shame. I'm pretty sure that's the way that he interprets it. So Jesus wasn't just a pacifist. It was nonviolent resistance. Oh, I like that. And in one of his books, Engaging the Powers or Naming the Powers. And, and I think it's not him, but Richard Rohr, actually, have you seen it where... Um, you know the parable of the of the talents? The hero of that story is the one who buries his talent. He refuses to go along with usury and lending lending money and so he's taken out and he's beaten up and you know what he had was stripped of him because he wouldn't be complicit with the way things are supposed to be in the culture. So Roar does this really cool thing where he actually turns that parable on its head and it's a form of nonviolent resistance. Try and tell that to somebody, and they won't for a second be willing to accept that because we've heard it one way our whole lives. Oh, that's interesting. I finished Corinthians, and I was doing a lesson, a preaching on the, the offering there that Paul is taking up. Right, right. It's the same sort of thing, that Paul is taking this money from Gentiles. He's giving it to Jews. And, of course, the, the idea there is they may not actually be welcoming either group. So it's a kind of aggressive generosity in which he is bringing these two groups of, together, one group giving, the other group receiving, as a displacement of the dividing wall of hostility. So it's not simply a sharing, you know, in a kind of communism, but it's an aggressive, pointed displacement of hostility. It's an undoing of an economy built on hostility, which I think all economies usually are. Uh, and is pointedly over and against that. If you think of Paul as a Pharisee, he was doing everything thing he could to bridge the gap or to hold the breach in the wall of hostility. He wanted that hostility, and he was carrying it out because you need the hostility. In other words, what he saw Christianity as doing is undoing the hostility and allowing the Gentiles in, and he didn't like that. And so as a Pharisee, he was willing to sacrifice people at the wall of hostility. <laughs> and so I think, yeah, that, that speaks to the same thing, that we can do things with generosity, with a kind of aggressive resistance that is not violent. And that's, I think, Yoder's picture of radical subordination. You can shame people, and I think that's the whole picture of, of what Jesus is doing, but isn't that the history of, of movements of nonviolence? That is, these movements have proven. I, I Today, I kind of budged a little bit. Howard was always pictured, and I, I, I've agreed with him, that you don't do nonviolence because it's practical. In other words, it, it's probably not. It's probably, it could get you killed, and that's not practical. On the other hand, I think that there is something to be said 
for movements like that of Mahatma Gandhi, and there's been all sorts of nonviolent movements in, you know, some, this guy, Aaron Woods was telling me this this morning, some 40 movements of nonviolence, many of which are secular, it's come to be seen as a kind of political weapon. Well, that's wonderful if people would embrace nonviolence as a means. That is, I think that's what Jesus is doing. You know, is it workable? Well, obviously, we don't want to say that's as Christians, but in a sense, I think it's defensible to say, well, in the end, nonviolence is a very strong force in political movements, and certainly in the race, you know, issue in this state, in this country. Martin Luther King Jr., mm. you know, accomplished. He it really was his nonviolent movement really was a success. At some level, it was a success. Mm -hmm. well, wasn't there a book that was very famous uh, during all the Arab Spring uprisings? It was um, 60 Ways to Overthrow Your Government with Nonviolence. I think there's oh, yeah. a story somewhere that there was a book that was well known. I love this conversation. Okay, well, we, we, uh, good meeting up. Uh, See you, David. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Have a wonderful night. You too. Good night. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.